Okay, so this is the third session of Liberating Teachings of the Buddha. So we're talking about the path, how it takes, what, what it's going to take to get from our mind that's busy and, and concerned about things and attached to things and suffering, therefore, to these kind of lofty descriptions of what it would be to be uh, transcend the conditioned realm or whatever language your idealized mind wants to do. Um, a lot of this is about removing ideals, by the way. But nonetheless, there is a path that we can walk. So we have to think, how should we conceive of that? If you, if you understand or accept that training the mind is important in what we're doing, you know, that that's really where the freedom is going to be, then it actually does matter what uh, ideas we use as we walk the path. It actually does matter how we conceive it, um, how we think about it. So there's a couple things I just want to make some general points, and then we're going to look at the sutta. So it's kind of a frame. Um, first of all, the path does not cause Nibbana. You might have not thought about that explicitly in those terms, but we can have a, sometimes a subtle belief that the practices I'm doing are going to eventually cause my mind to awaken. Um, this is actually not true. And anymore, the analogy given is that the road to a mountain does not cause the mountain. It just goes there. And that's not to say that practice is not important. You do have to do that. We're going to get to it some of the sort of the different ways of seeing the path. But uh, this, is, this is a subtle point because what's unconditioned has no conditions supporting it. So if it required you know, something to create or uh, make Nibbana happen, um, it would not be unconditioned, would it? So this is actually kind of subtle. So, but nonetheless, we look at our life, whoa, I'm not free. So there's then ways that we can conceive of how to bring ourselves uh, toward what the Buddha was pointing us to. Um, Remember at the end of the last session, we saw that Nibbana is not some high attainment that you have to actually let go. Anuruddha had to let go of all his psychic powers and other things that he developed in, and turn toward the deathless. So again and again, we see that this is not something that we can quite understand. Can't quite understand it. We're going to keep trying, and it's okay. We're, we're going to have concepts, but we have to just remember that the conceptual mind cannot hold uh, what this is. So then, um, do we think of awakening as something that comes after a process? You know, we, we have to walk that road to the mountain. Even if the road's not causing the mountain, we do have to walk it. So then we can get the idea that the path is some long extended thing and awakening is somewhere far in the future when I'm way more pure than I am right now. And, you know, that's not, that's not totally wrong. Uh, we do have to do the practices. Um, so then, the, but then, other teachers will tell us, well, you know, all you have to do is let go. Actually, awakening can only happen now. It doesn't happen sometime in the future. We set ourselves up for awakening is not here. It's somewhere over there. Uh, that, is, that is not always helpful because actually something that's unconditioned is outside of time. It's literally available every moment if we could not be clinging in that moment. Any moment there is no clinging, there is awakening present. So, but we may not see it in a given moment. So what we have, what I'm framing, is what is in a larger picture in Buddhism framed as the gradual path versus sudden awakening. 
And there are schools that have really focused on one particular way of seeing that. You know, is it a process where we create skillful conditions? I mean, there are conditions to be created, but what we're getting the mind into is a state where it will be able to let go out of conditions. Technically, you could do that at any moment, um, but uh, there are things that help. <laughs> Let's say it that way. What did one teacher say? Awakening is an accident, but practice makes us accident prone. I think that's a good framing. So we're going to look at suttas today that kind of um, dance around this territory of, is this something that we're creating slowly through a process? We're creating a mind that can awaken. We're not creating Nibbana itself. Or is this something that at any moment we could have it if we would just let go? It's just, it's right now, it's right here. Um, both of those are useful ways to conceive and both of them can tangle us up. So I just um, wanna frame that. And then we'll look at one sutta that kind of is a little bit of a middle way that I, I find very helpful. Okay, so we wanna look uh, to sort of understand this balance and give some specific ideas also of the qualities that we would want to um, condition in our mind in order to allow the path to unfold. Because for sure, the path doesn't unfold if we're not ethical, you know, not mindful. You know, these, there are certain things that are conducive for the mind to learn how to let go. Okay, so with that, let's go to the first um, sutta, which was technically 43.11, but I also asked you to look at 43.1. And so what I did in the thing that I'm gonna share is I brought in the language from 43.1 that was what's called elided in 43.11. Because when there's a bunch of stuff that's repeated, often they don't put it all in, probably saves palm leaves, you know, and, I mean, these are actually, these, those dot, dot, dots are in the original texts. <laughs> so they even knew back then that there was a need to put dot, dot, dot. So would somebody like to read this text? It's short enough. Okay, Carol. You're still muted. There. At Savati, bhikkhus, I will teach you the unconditioned and the path leading to the unconditioned. Listen to that and attend carefully. I will speak. And what bhikkhus is the unconditioned? The destruction of lust, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. This is called the unconditioned. And what bhikkhus is the path leading to the unconditioned? the Noble Eightfold Path. This is called the path leading to the unconditioned. Thus, bhikkhus, I have taught you the unconditioned and the path leading to the unconditioned. Whatever should be done, bhikkhus, by a compassionate teacher out of compassion for his disciples, desiring their welfare, that I have done for you. These are the feet of trees, bhikkhus. These are empty huts. Meditate, bhikkhus. Do not be negligent, lest you regret it later. This is our instruction to you. Thank you, Carol. That was great. So this sutta doesn't have a lot of really detailed instructions in it. In fact, it names the Eightfold Path without naming all the factors of it. Uh, often he'll say this Noble Eightfold Path, namely right view, right intention, 
etc. But he doesn't even say that here. These are very uh, condensed suttas for which you would need, of course, other knowledge to be able to put them into practice. Um, and then did anyone look at some of the other sections of 43 at some of the other things? I see some nods that were there. So there were things like mindfulness of the body here. I've been, just got it here in front of me. Serenity and insight, emptiness, concentration, um, you know, right striving, spiritual power, spiritual faculties. So you could kind of add up all these things. And these would be a, a pretty good body of what the, the practices that the Buddha recommends. And then you would need to, of course, go look in other teachings or ask a teacher what those refer to. Um, so I'll just point out the language again, the path leading to the unconditioned. So we have um, in suffering, we have suffering and we have a condition for it, namely craving, tanha. But for the... Um, third noble truth of freedom, we have the path leading to it. We don't have the cause of it. So it is, it's slightly different language and it's significant. And then I kind of like this last paragraph. Um, it's really sweet. It, this is one of the few kind of instances where the Buddha reveals um, his care in a very kind of explicit way um, you know, that he's really doing this because of compassion. He sees that people are suffering, and so he offers these teachings, but the teachings are pretty um, clear. You know, then he says, here are the feet of trees and empty huts. Meditate, <laughs> because, you know, as much as, you know, the Buddha was said to have ocean-like compassion, but he couldn't literally himself uh, awaken other beings. Um, that's also a thing that's not promised in the Buddhist teachings, although, you know, there are various ways that we influence other beings, but in the end, it's something that we do, and we'll see that more in the, um, maybe next next session, we're not doing weeks. Okay, so um, more on this, comments? Please just speak, since I can't see all of you. Kim. I have a question, Kim. Yes, Kurt. Um, I'm not sure what it means. These are the feet of trees. These are empty huts. Um, my understanding of that is that he's uh, indicating where they should sit. So sit here under this oh. tree, sit in an empty hut. Okay. Pointing out, um, sit. <laughs> Get your I thought it was a metaphor, but it was more specific than that. Thank you. Yeah, these are um, kind of code words for places where monks would sit. So one thing that um, on the second paragraph where it's destruction of lust, destruction of hatred, destruction of delusion. Oh, yes, that's worth going oh, to. The cause of, of, of suffering is craving and clinging. And I certainly see lust and hatred as the two extremes clinging to both of those. The delusion one, I mean, I totally understand delusion, but how does that fit into the category of craving, the delusion? I always kind of get, I just sort of, that's just one of the silly things that I get. Right, so why is that related to tanha, is yeah. what you're saying, is the yeah. um, arising of suffering? That's an interesting question. Um, I think 
I think I'm gonna frame it such that remember last time I gave kind of a very casual list of problems that end up showing up. You know, we have the fetters, the yes. poisons, the hindrances. Um, so these are the examples of the poisons, lust, hatred, and delusion. Um, in the end, all of the uh, problems, all those lists are caused by ignorance. Um, mm -hmm. All of them uh, come stem back to that sort of ultimately. Um, and then craving, though, is the one that we can sort of feel more viscerally. And so I think the Buddha names often ignorance and craving as the kind of the twin problems in the mind when you get down to if you're going to name just two of them. Yeah. And so um, I'm going to say that those come from somewhat different levels. You know, the ignorance is a little bit more basic. Craving includes ignorance because like, like for an example, any full-blown expression of lust or hatred includes delusion in it because you have to believe that there's something you can get or get rid of, or you have to believe that there's a me who can get it. There's something going on there if you're reaching toward or away from something that's already deluded. And then in addition, the Buddha names that there is, there are pure forms of delusion that are just simply not understanding um, at a more fundamental level. So I'm gonna say they actually come from somewhat different levels. Yeah, I like associating with ignorance. I think that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Another way I've thought about these, or sort of come to it from my own practice, which I maybe it's worthwhile sharing, is that um, there are ways in which anything that is not freedom creates a, a structure in the mind. There's a sort of a warping of the fabric of the mind, if you will, um, and lust and hatred or greed and hatred um, are sort of obvious uh, examples of that. And delusion is a little bit more subtle, but it's like as if you're trying to um, look through a space, but it's not just an empty space. It's like a, a piece of glass that has a little bit of curving, curve to it internally. So it's a little bit warped. That is the effect of delusion on the mind, is that anything that comes through that is a little bit twisted or turned or separated or something. And so what practice does is it literally straightens out the mind. And you, you get phrases like that, like Ujjupatipano, mm -hmm. practicing in the straight way, the Sangha. And so we're practicing to iron out the wrinkles and the, the warps in the very structure and fabric of the mind. That well, I can certainly, from my own experience, see where delusion causes suffering in my own experience. So I have no problem yeah. with that. Yeah. Kim, I don't know if it's helpful, but uh, a long time ago, a teacher would say that as we're all looking at the world through our own different colored lenses. Yes. Rose, yellow, green. It colors everything. It colors everything. Yeah. yeah. You can think of it as a color or a shape, mm -hmm. whatever. It's something that where we're not seeing things, as we saw last time, as they are with correct wisdom or as they have come to be with correct wisdom. It's very humbling. When we really look at what these teachings are saying, they're not very much saying you need to be a better person. They're saying actually the whole way that your psychophysical system is set up is uh, somewhat unbalanced in certain ways. And then it becomes like, wow, how do I work on that? <laughs> you know, it's a lot more than, um, some of the more, I mean, we maybe start with the more surface level things, but this is why we start to see that meditation is really important because what insight does is it flattens those curves. It takes out wrinkles that could not be done through uh, merely working on, say, ethics. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, so one, sometimes I've thought about this and this destruction of delusion um, as touching on something we talked about last time, and that is uh, the desire for non-being. So mm. that is a kind of craving, actual craving for ignorance. I don't want to know. Don't make my life difficult. Ah, this is a I'm good point. Yeah, there are a number of suttas and you've, that um, point toward ignorance being active. It's not, a, we think of ignorance as I didn't know, I just, you know, I, I didn't have that knowledge. And that's kind of a common way of saying it. But um, you're right, ignorance is an active not wanting to know. Um, and that can be very humbling also. There is a part of the mind that does not want to wake up. We will encounter it <laughs> frequently in many different forms. So yes, thank you for that, Dan. That, that is a way that there is craving associated with delusion. Kim? Yeah. Um, just one quick thing. I, I did go through the whole section of 43 and it was found it very interesting, but I also just got the feeling like um, there are many ways to get there, not, not just one yeah. way. Cause sometimes it, it's exhausting to go through all these different um, paths or, you know, to read about all. You these. don't have to do all of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, that's good. I was just kind of confirming that with you. <laughs> yeah, no, you definitely, it's not expected that you're going to master every single one of the practices that's offered. What happened was the, the Buddha realized you know, that beings had different kinds of minds. And so as he started working with people and talking with people and seeing what their issues were, he uh, designed more and more uh, ways that articulated more and more ways that it would be possible for the mind to eventually come to letting go. And so, yeah. So all those ones in 43 are examples of, of such things. So this is an example of, of a gradual training. And I didn't give a sutta on the actual process called the gradual training. There is such a thing. Um, and there are suttas where the Buddha says, you know, awakening is a, through gradual practice, gradual progress, gradual, you know, performance or something like that. And he describes a method where you start with, you know, basic awareness, and then you have moderation in eating, and then you have moderation of sleeping and um, mindfulness in all activities and up through concentration practices and finally uh, vipassana practices. And so he, he's very clear that this is not something that you're going to just, <clears throat> you know, come to immediately, and there might be a process involved. So this is an example of a, of a sutta that um, falls in, in line with that. And there are many such ones. But the next sutta we're looking at, so I want to go down now to the, um, to the one on Bahia, Bahia um, which is a very famous sutta. Some of you have probably, I know some of you have done this, and maybe even all of you have done this, maybe too many times, I don't know. Uh, but it's never too many times. This one is more an example of the letting go, you know, is that awakening is available at the moment that we've let go. Now, of course, keep in mind that Bahia was very well advanced. Uh, actually, he was an advanced practitioner already. But nonetheless, we don't need to continually think of awakening as something that's a little bit ahead of me, whether it's, you know, far ahead of me or even the next moment, because actually awakening can only be now. How else, where else could it happen? When else could it happen but now? 
uh, even if it's in the future, it'll be now at that time. So if we continually think of awakening in the future, we'll never get there. Um, so it does, we do have to have a sense that it can happen right now. So just the background, I don't know if you read this whole sutta or not, but um, Bahia uh, is a trainer in another tradition and he's actually quite um, advanced. He has a well-developed mind. He's probably done a lot of concentration practice as was common at the time. And he thought maybe he was an arahant uh, and started thinking, I must be awake. And a deva very kindly comes and tells him, no, you're not actually awake, and uh, you're not even on the path to awakening. And he had enough spiritual maturity to not get like egotistically upset about that, but instead to go and try to find the Buddha, who you know, the deva pointed him toward. And so he comes, and um, of course, he interrupts the Buddha's alms round, and uh, the Buddha says, this is not the right time. Uh, to ask me questions. He says, please teach me the Dhamma. And so the Buddha says, look, I'm, can't you see that I'm walking on alms round? This is not the moment. And so then, but he asks the second time and then he asks the third time. And the third one is kind of poignant because he says, it's hard to know the dangers uh, to one's life or the dangers to my life. So he says, you could die or I could die. Uh, and I really want this teaching. <laughs> and so the, um, the Buddha relents. Uh, you can just imagine this scene. He's in the middle of a town. Well, the Buddha's walking for alms, probably with a bunch of other monks. And this, you know, person dressed in bark clothing because he's an ascetic of the time uh, is coming and, and begging the Buddha for teachings. And so then we finally get to, um, in that case, Bahia. Would somebody please um, read, uh, read from there? I can read it. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks, Philip. I'm sorry, starting in which paragraph? In that case, Bahia. Oh, and it. if there's too many Bahias, you can start to skip them eventually. <laughs> in that case, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In what is seen, there must be only what is seen. In what is heard, there must be only what is heard. In what is sensed, there must be only what is sensed. In what is cognized, there must be only what is cognized. This is the way, Bahia, you should train yourself. And since for you, Bahia, in what is seen, there will only be what is seen. In what is heard, there will only be what is heard. In what is sensed, there will only be sent what is sensed. In what is cognized, there will be only what is cognized. All right. Therefore, you will not be with that. And since Bahia, you will not be that with that. Therefore, you will not be in that. And since Bahia, you will not be in that. Therefore, you will not be here or hereafter or in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. Thank you. <laughs> even hard to read. Much like it is even hard to read. And so, lo and behold, um, Bahia was freed at that moment. He, um, he got it. In case we didn't get it, we can go over it um, a bit. So this is a very direct training. He doesn't say there's a gradual path of practice, you're going to do this and then this and then this. He says every moment you should train yourself that I actually don't like this must be very much in the verb, but um, other translations say in the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. 
in the sensed, only the sensed, and the cognized, only the cognized. This is meant to refer to all six senses. This word sensed, uh, which is muta in Pali, refers to um, smell, taste, and touch. It's all the um, immediate uh, senses that, are, that require contact with the thing. Um, so it's very simple. And you know, the problem, therefore, that's being avoided is for us to make more of something. We may have possibly, potentially, now and then, experienced this in our meditation, is that we make more of something than it is, right? You know, a, a sound comes by, and instead of there being only the herd in the herd, we say, what is that? Is that my neighbors outside? Are they doing such and such? How come they always do that at this time? Blah, 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 blah. And you know, sometime later, we realize that we're not mindful anymore. Um, and so there's, uh, and so we come back, and there's this teaching that says, again and again, to just keep things really, really simple, and not build on sense experience, uh, even in the mind, even thoughts that come through. Um, are there questions about that paragraph of what the instruction is? This is the way you should train yourself. That part I think we can get, even if it's hard to do, actually. Uh, very hard to do. Um, <clears throat> so then he goes on with this much more, uh, it sounds esoteric, but it's essentially a teaching on not self. So it says that, you know, when there's uh, only in the scene what is seen, then you will not be with that. So you don't have a chance to sort of form yourself in relationship to that. Um, let me go to chat. How is this teaching different from mindfulness? Um, I would say that mindfulness has is a little bit um, broader than that. You can, when you're mindful, you can, for example, put noting in there. You can know what something is. Um, you can do a little bit of analysis of, um, like, for example, in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the fourth Satipatthana, we're supposed to understand how something comes to be, how it can be maintained, and how it falls away, and how it cannot re-arise. So there's a time component built into mindfulness where we actually start to observe dependent arising uh, through some of the mindfulness instructions. Or there's also instructions in the third Satipatthana that ask us to notice what is not present. So we have to notice, oh, my mind is currently not wrapped up in anger. So you have to have some concept of anger not being in your mind. So there's a little bit more functionality of the mind brought in. This is very, very stark. And I don't know that we can really do it all the time. I don't know that we would, for us who are not totally awakened, that we would need to do it all the time. Um, but as a way of practice, of continually just staying with this moment, this moment, this moment, only moment to moment to moment to moment, is very um, direct training for the mind. Does that help, Evelyn? Yeah, although I still don't. It's similar to basic mind. It's yeah. Maybe what I'll say is, in this, even in the Satipatthana Sutta, there are different um, instructions in that refrain that goes in between each of the various you know, practices of mindfulness that we can do, and one of them is um, he maintains just bare awareness, just enough awareness for there to be mindfulness. Uh, let me get that exactly. 
since I happen to be sitting here next to the book. Okay. So he abides con contemplating the body as a body internally, externally, both internally and externally. Uh, in the nature of arising, in the nature of vanishing, in the nature of both arising and vanishing, or, or else mindfulness that there is a body, quote unquote, is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. So that is the, like the third kind of way that you would do mindfulness that's listed here. So there's internal, external, arising and passing away, which are both a little bit, have a little bit more cognition involved in them. And then there's this bare mindfulness. So I would say that you're correct. This is related to, um, this is essentially a form of mindfulness practice, but it's a particular form that is uh, one, just one of the options offered in, in the Satipatthana Sutta, Sutta on the development of mindfulness. It's almost like you're a screen, like you're just detecting, yeah. like you're just. Like a detector, exactly. Yeah. Um, in some ways. And then, of course, what I said earlier about the warping is you realize that what's coming in is still slightly warped if you're not completely free. But we can't do anything about that except keep watching it, keep watching it until it straightens through insight. Um, and isn't this kind of lineage, the, the, the Burmese lineage, the Burmese kind of uh, style of um, mindfulness, keeping it very constantly noticing what's happening in your body just at that very stark level um i can't remember the teacher's name but we did a i wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily tie this to a given cultural tradition this is done also in yeah this is done in any of the forms of theravadan practice but you're right that the emphasis on momentariness is tends to go towards the abhidhamma or the vasudhimaga the somewhat later teachings not as much focused on the suttas and those later teachings are more emphasized in the burmese tradition but i would say that all uh, theravadan teachers would recognize this because it does come from the satipatthana sutta and this bahia instruction is also in the suttas so essentially into this second paragraph then we have um there's no way that a self can form. If we're just experiencing a sound, where is there any Kim in that? You know, I just hear something. The idea of, oh, that's my neighbor. There's Kim and there's Kim's neighbor already. So there's something coming out, something else coming in, right? Some other ideas coming in. Not that these other ideas are wrong. It doesn't ever say that in this sutta. They're very functional for the world but we, we're interrupting the process of forming a self and creating a theory about things and wondering about things and, and going on, which is called papancha. So um, by interrupting that process continually in this training and just bare awareness um, or bare mindfulness, we could say, uh, the mind slowly gets kind of less attached to this need to form a self all the time. That's the best I can understand the process. And so at some point, there just, you know, there just isn't any uh, grabbing on to experience. And so he says this, just this is the end of suffering. So it's a very immediate thing. It could happen right now if we weren't clinging. 
So it points us right into this moment. It's a different understanding of awakening. By the way, there is another sutta, yet another one, that uh, says that just like the ocean slopes gradually downward, and then after a long while, there's a steep drop off. In the same way, we train and train and train, and then at some point, there's a steep drop off. So as one teacher said, is the path gradual or sudden? Well, it's gradual until it's sudden. And I think that's pretty good. So are we ready to go on to, um, to the volition one? Okay. So this one has yet a different conception of what we're doing in practice. And it's a, quite repetitive. Uh, so um, and there's 10 of them, and then there's this nice summary, and then it goes on to etc. So would somebody like to start reading this? And maybe we would read like um, the first few completely, and then after that, you can just put in the word that changes. So this is a mental exercise to just um, explain what each thing the next one flows to is. Would anyone like to read it in that way? And then stop before the summary paragraph at the end. I'll do it. Okay. Thanks, Susan. Thanks, iPad. <laughs> um, bhikkhus, for a virtuous person, one whose behavior is virtuous, no volition need be exerted. Let non-regret arise in me. It is natural that non-regret arises in a virtuous person, one whose behavior is virtuous. For one without regret, no volition need be exerted. Let joy arise in me. It is natural that joy arises in one without regret. For one who is joyful, no volition need be exerted. Let rapture arise in me. It is natural that rapture arises in one who is joyful. For one with a rapturous, rapturous mind, no volition need be exerted. Let my body be tranquil. It is natural for the body of one okay. with a rapturous mind, tranquil. For what? For one tranquil in body, no volition need be. Let me feel pleasure. It is natural that <laughs> at one tranquil in body feels pleasure. For one feeling pleasure, no volition need be exerted. Let my mind be concentrated. It is natural that the mind of one feeling pleasure is concentrated. For one who is concentrated, be exerted. Let me know and see things as they really are. It is natural that one who is concentrated knows and sees things as they really are. For one who knows and sees things as they really are, no volition need be exerted. Let me be disenchanted and dispassionate. It is natural that one who knows and sees things as they really are is disenchanted and dispassionate. For one who is disenchanted and dispassionate, no volition need be exerted. Let me realize the knowledge and vision of liberation. It is natural for one who is disenchanted and dispassionate realizes the knowledge and vision of liberation. Okay, great. Thank you. So let's stop there. Um, so we have a kind of a sequence. So again, we have a sequence uh, of one thing to the next. Thank you. That was, that was great reading. Um, and again, we have this uh, no one sees things 
as they really are. Sorry about that. So uh, let's make that as they have come to be <laughs> um, in our minds. I asked a teacher about this, a translator about this. He's a translator in the Tibetan tradition where um, they also have this phrase. And I said, why, did, why is it always like this when the word is not R? And he said, I don't know, it was a mistake we made early in translation. <laughs> so uh, apparently it took us a while to learn uh, how to do the English uh, for some of these stock, stock phrases. So we have here a wonderful sequence that starts with virtue. So it starts with sila. The foundation is virtue or ethical conduct. And we can maybe understand that if you've behaved ethically, there would be no reason to regret. So let non-regret arise. You sort of don't have to think about that. You know, if you um, did something completely truthfully, honestly, kindly, um, even if someone questioned you about it, you wouldn't have regret that you had done something like that. So um, it's kind of natural. And then he goes on though with this amazing sequence and he says, wow, if you have no regret, then you can be joyful about that. And it's kind of natural that that would happen unless of course we block it with some conditioning that comes onto there. And then he goes on, oh, there's rapture and tranquility and, uh, pleasure, and then concentration. Some of these words are particular poly words that you might not always translate in the same way, but generally it's like good mental feelings start happening. And then the mind becomes calm, tranquil, and then concentrated. And then uh, when the mind is concentrated, this is said to be the function of concentration is that we see clearly. So we see things as they are. Um, and then when we've seen things as they are, don't get tripped up with this disenchanted. That's a negative word in English, but it really means that we're no longer fooled by them. We're not enchanted. We haven't uh, been kissed by the prince or whatever. How does that go? So I don't know. Is that you're, you've been in, had a spell cast on you and at some point you wake up from it. And then um, again, dispassionate might sound like a suffering word, but we could also, that another translation of that word, which is viraga, is fading away, um, fading away. So fading away of what? Of, of suffering. So fading away of grasping. Actually, raga means lust. So viraga actually means the fading away of the grasping at things, the craving. Okay, so that fades away. And then when that has faded away, we would realize liberation and the, not the knowledge and vision that comes with that. And what I like about this is this word natural that, have, that is in each one of them. So, in fact, it even says this at the end, thus one stage flows to the next. But why don't we, um, now that we've sort of gone over the components of it, uh, we have this, I'll just read through this part. This is kind of a, it's like a different version of dependent arising. It's um, actually, I have a sutta reference at the end where there's another sutta that talks about this. So starting from the end, the knowledge and vision of liberation is the purpose and benefit of disenchantment and dispassion. So if you have disenchantment and dispassion, the purpose of that is to flow into liberation. And that's the benefit of having those. Disenchantment and dispassion are the purpose and benefit of the knowledge and vision of things as they have come to be. Knowledge and vision of things that they have come to be is the purpose and benefit of concentration. And on down through pleasure, tranquility, rapture, joy, non-regret and virtuous behavior. 
So starting from something that we can really get our hands on, right? We can understand virtuous behavior. That is something tangible, real. We maybe practice it, work on it, and we should. Um, but what is it going to? Is it just so that we can become a good person? Well, no, actually it has, if you allow it, it has a function in developing the mind on the path to uh, genuine awakening. So we have thus, because one stage flows into the next, one stage fills up the next. We're going from the near shore to the far shore. And that's, these are code words for near shore is dukkha, far shore is freedom. Right here in this life, it's not about, sometimes it's about another life, but in this sutta he's referring to right now within this very life, we would do this sequence of things. So if it's natural to go from one to the other, let me ask you, is there an agent here? Do you detect any agent in this sutta? Any comments on that? Well, sort of attention to, I mean, even if one thing leads to the next, that at least the first thing requires some attention, at least for me. <laughs> yeah. So we do have this word virtuous person right here. So there's, there's apparently a person at the beginning. Um, somebody wrote in the comment in the chat, uh, just dependent arising. Yeah, this is not the traditional teaching on dependent arising. This is called trans, transcendent, transcendent dependent arising because it's the one that takes you up and out instead of just around in a circle again and again. So I asked a question that was a little bit hard. I asked it like a yes or no question. Is there an agent here? I think it's um, kind of. <laughs> we do bring something. Um, we, are, we, we have to do something. One whose behavior is virtuous. Our behavior, we have some control over. We experience that. Um, and yet, these things happening in the mind seem to happen without us having to want them or, or intend for them. There's another sutta about a chicken that's sitting on eggs. And it says that the chicken, if this chicken sits on the eggs correctly, uh, they don't have to want the chicks to hatch. They do have to sit on the eggs correctly, right? If they don't sit on the eggs and just kind of wander around, the eggs will never hatch. But if the chicken sits on the eggs correctly, it doesn't have to have the extra of wanting the chicks to hatch. That, that will just happen. It's a process. So we do bring something to this path. We bring our attention. We bring our practice. Um, but after that, it's kind of not up to us. The no volition gets you. Yeah. So it does say, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Bruce. Oh, well, it does, after the one and two, which says for a virtuous person, there's always the phrase uh, no volition. Uh, yes. yes, no volition. No volition. So that would for suggest one. that there's less, ind less individual making it happen, sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. So my experience with things in practice is that there's a certain amount at the beginning where we can 
do something. Like if you look at the seven factors of awakening, for example, which is one of those things in 43 that leads to, uh, that leads to the unconditioned, I feel like I have some choice about mindfulness. I can intend to be mindful. It doesn't mean it always happens. That's the first of the factors of awakening. I have some control over my energy, which is, sorry, it's investigation after that. So I can choose to look in a certain way. Energy, somewhat, although I'm subject to flows of energy, but I can work with them. And by the time it gets to joy, the, the joy that's talked about as a factor of awakening, PT is a gift. You know, it comes through practice. It just arises when the mind is still enough. We'll have this PT, this joy arise. Tranquility, concentration, equanimity in their mature forms, those, those are not something I can will. So right there within that list, um, we have a sequence where at the beginning we, we have some role to play. And then more and more what we're doing is going along with a natural process. So I would frame this as yet another way of conceiving the path is that um, it it's, could be something that we do gradually and we do this and this and this and this and this and there is something of that. It can be something that just happens suddenly like it happened to Bahia by not clinging to anything, you know, we would be there. Or um, we can see that we can consider that what we're doing is tapping into a process that wants to happen but we're in the way of it. Uh, kind of like, uh, like healing a wound. You know, if you get cut, I don't know, I would not want to be consciously in charge of that process. I don't know how to direct all the things to the wound in the right proportions and so create new skin cells and sew it all together. Please just let my body do that. But I have a role to play in terms of keeping it clean and covered and, you know, other things like that. So I like this view of awakening. It's something that you maybe see more as you get more through into practice. And maybe you've had some retreat experience where you understand that you're not really in control of what goes on in, the, in there, but you do have to get yourself there and do the practices. So is awakening something that kind of wants to happen uh, if we were just stop preventing it? That's a humbling way to see the path. Um, so it's an, yet another conception. It's another idea, something we can think that we understand, and in the end, we don't totally understand. But it is a very, I think, a useful frame, a useful model. Are there any further comments on this one? Oh, I want to um, get down. If you want to read more about this sequence, SN 1223, remember that's in the linked discourses section. Uh, this is a sutta that goes into um, this sequence in another way. It's called Transcendent Dependent Arising. Dr. Kim, um, yes, Dan. That occurred to me right away, and the difference seems to be that in uh, transcendent dependent origination, the first elements of faith and effort are not present here, and they're replaced by virtuous behavior. This is a good point. Um, I have, yeah, so this is a different formulation of it. I have thought about how virtue and faith are linked uh, in that if you look at the five spiritual faculties, which are faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, that's a description of the eightfold path if you replace conduct with faith. Because you would have conduct, and then samadhi is energy, mindfulness, and concentration, and then wisdom. That, those are the three components of the eightfold path if you take faith to be the same as sila. So there's something um, there that has to do with, 
I, I've, I've tried to work out how this could be exact, and I don't, I don't find an exact connection, but there's something about the, uh, the kind of mm, giving yourself over, giving yourself to, you know, not doing only what I want to do, but doing what's good for others. And then in a sense of faith also of giving myself over to a path, not just doing what I want to do, but I'm going to undertake this practice. There's kind of a dissimilar movement of mind there. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Your simplicity is pure. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> you know, um, the early Buddhist teachings. Oh, go ahead, Dan. You weren't done. I, I do think it's very interesting to, to think about the two of them because I, I think you're you're right in the sense that um, that faith, uh, it, I feel, must include behavior. Must include virtuous behavior. Um, because it is that sense of, of giving over, oh, I'm going to do this for the benefit yeah. of others, not just myself. Uh, and it's really interesting to think about how all of the other uh, 10 steps uh, in this path are identical, except for those, those two elements. And so I'm not sure there is much difference, but because they're presented this way, it makes it sort of more intriguing to think about it. Yeah. It's fun. Dan is pointing out something that gets fun when you start knowing some of these teachings is you start following little trails and looking for connections. And there are such connections to be found. But I think I would be remiss if I didn't say that, and I know we're almost at the end and I have to give you the ones for Friday. Um, early Buddhist teachings, for some reason, do not try to create a complete universe where all the ends get tied up nicely. And the later traditions tried to do that. They tried to make complete philosophies, complete philosophical systems where all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And what you have more in the early teachings, especially in the suttas, is what one teacher has called spotlights. So you get a little glimpse of this. You get a bunch of detail of this and this and this, and they're kind of related. Um, and you can, they're not unrelated. They're definitely not, you know, sort of, jumbled or anything. They are all consistent, but you don't get a one nice package philosophical system. And that's probably good for us because then we won't start thinking that we can really understand uh, with our cognitive mind, which is our theme for today is that, um, you know, this path eventually leads to something, doesn't cause it, leads to something um, beyond what we can totally understand. So going then to our summary, um, I first have actually a little advertisement, which is that this book, The Island, is a wonderful book. It's an anthology of the Buddhist teachings about Nibbana and the whole path and all this stuff, and they're all kind of collected. Uh, I don't know if you can get a physical one anymore. They were kind of out of like 10, 12 years ago, but they can be the PDF can be downloaded from the website here. And then the second part of my advertisement is that one of the authors of this book, Ajahn Pasano, is coming to Insight Santa Cruz on October 9th and 10th, thanks to Jill and Bruce for inviting him, and I'm glad he accepted. He is the former abbot of um, Abayagiri up north. And um, yeah, so he'll be coming, so you can mark your calendars if you're interested. As a summary for today, we had a sutta on the gradual training cultivation of the Eightfold Path or various other schemes leads to realizing the unconditioned. The right conditioning leads to the unconditioned. It's great. Uh, um, and then we had one on sudden awakening. So we just experience things as they are. 
And then we had this natural idea, the idea that there's a natural process that we're tapping into through our practice if we would just get out of the way and let it happen. Okay. So, session four, which is Friday at this same time, is about um, stream entry. So this is not a topic that you hear about a lot, but it's been talked about more in our tradition lately, which I'm happy to hear, because it can be a little daunting to feel like full awakening. My gosh, you know, that's a long time from now or whatever we're thinking. I don't know what ideas we have. So the, the tradition, and this is not unique to the Buddhist tradition, by the way, many spiritual traditions acknowledge that there comes a point for a dedicated practitioner where the mind starts operating differently, the system maybe starts operating differently. There's a shift of some kind, and we call that stream entry in our tradition. And so I want to talk about what that is and what it entails and all that. Uh, oh, you have to wait for the next page. So there's three. This MN5618, I really wanted to include, and I didn't like any of the translations that I could find online, so I'm giving you Bhikkhu Bodhi's version. And then we'll look at F MN48. You can read the whole thing if you want. It's a very nice sutta. But I think if we just look at section 7.1 to the end, that would be fine. It's about half the sutta, actually. And then there's also a whole section in the Samyutta Nikaya on the connected discourses on stream entry. And I know, realized I didn't include any. So I, if you want to read those, there's 74 of them. It's a big undertaking. But you, know, you can always do that. So here's the second reading. Please take a picture or some such. You can literally pick up your phone and, you know, if you want. So this is the little paragraph that I want us to look at um, from MN 56, section 18. Mm. Any final comments? Me, please. Yes, Susan. IPad. <laughs> Susan, iPad. So everybody, um, I, it's low case, but um, if anybody can offer Kim some Donna, it's, um, I put it in the chat box. Okay, I think I have to stop sharing for that. So in the chat box, actually that only came to me, it looks like, Susan. So let me, um, let me add that to. I, plus I did it. To be you did lower. it, okay. Yeah, but it was uppercase. Actually, it doesn't matter. The uppercase will be okay. Um, okay. Oh, good. It doesn't okay. matter. So thank you for pointing that out. Thank you. I don't often remember that. Yeah, so okay. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. That was fun. It's nice to have thank all of you. you. And um, see you Friday. Yes. Okay, be well. All right. Be well, everyone. Bye. Bye.